Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Sarah Kenzior, author and co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast, who examines the Republican Party's ongoing nationwide effort to subvert free and fair elections and the Democrats' tepid response. Big win a member of the Northern Arapaho tribe, who talks about how he came to be an active water protector, engaged in the fight to stop the Line 3 tar sands pipeline in northern Minnesota. And Nicholas Kuznets, a reporter with Inside Climate News, who discusses the rebellion of ExxonMobil shareholders, who elected two new board members, challenging the oil giants in action on climate change. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Poland will become the first NATO country to purchase armed drones from Turkey, an emerging international arms supplier. According to Reuters, Poland has agreed to buy 24 Bayraktar TB2 drones armed with anti-tank weapons. With major ambitions in the Middle East, Turkey has become the world's fourth largest supplier of unmanned military drones. Turkey's authoritarian president, Tayyip Erdogan, has promoted arms sales to limit reliance on Western nations. Turkey's armed drones have been sold to nations engaged in active conflicts, including Azerbaijan, Ukraine, Qatar, and Libya. In April, Canada scrapped a deal to supply camera technology for Turkey's drones. An inquiry concluded that the drones were used by the Azerbaijan military in the disputed region of Nagorno-Karabakh. Despite the fact that Canada is an ally of Azerbaijan, which captured territory in its recent conflict with Armenia, Canadian officials concluded its technology use was inconsistent with Canada's foreign policy. The Guardian reports Facebook has allowed low-profile world leaders and politicians to use its platform to harass political opponents, despite the social media giant having been alerted to violations of its policy. While Facebook cracked down on similar cases in the United States, Taiwan, and South Korea, it ignored abuses in countries including Honduras, Afghanistan, Iraq, and Mongolia. Former Facebook data scientist Sophie Zhang, who worked in the tech giant's integrity unit and was fired in September 2020, said there's a lot of harm being done on Facebook that is not being responded to because it's not considered enough of a PR risk. With 2.8 billion users, Facebook plays a dominant role in the political discourse of nearly every country in the world, but the platform's algorithms and features can be manipulated to distort political debate. One of the most blatant examples is Honduras President Juan Orlando Hernandez, where his staff was directly involved in a campaign to boost content on his page with hundreds of thousands of fake likes. It took Facebook more than a year to take down the Honduran network of fake pages. President Joe Biden's stimulus legislation included a generous child tax credit that could reverse a generation of austerity-driven welfare reform, which saw a shrinking percentage of low-income people being eligible to receive cash assistance. 
Biden's American Rescue Plan expanded the earned income tax credit, extended unemployment benefits, boosted public assistance, and food stamps. More importantly, it temporarily expands the child tax credit that increased annual benefits to $3,600 per child and expanded eligibility for families with little or no income. The American Prospect reports the program also allows the tax credit to be delivered as a monthly cash benefit. For a family of a working mother with three children, the new program would boost the value of the tax credit by $9,000 a year. But Biden's child tax credit only lasts 12 months, and a raging debate is already underway over what will replace it. The expanded tax credit not only cuts poverty and reduces income instability, but it could be a catalyst toward a new welfare system that values individuals, families, and children, refusing to let them suffer when we have the resources to assist those in need. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. With little precedent in U.S. history, the Republican Party blocked the establishment of a bipartisan congressional commission to investigate the January 6 pro-Trump insurrection that attempted to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election, resulting in the deaths of five people. This, as GOP-controlled states across the country, are working to pass new laws, making it more difficult for communities of color to vote. According to the Brennan Center for Justice, 361 Republican-sponsored voter suppression bills are now pending in 47 states. In addition to phony partisan audits of the November 2020 election that have been launched in Arizona and Georgia, Republicans are removing nonpartisan state and county boards that oversee elections and replacing them with GOP partisans that would have the power to overturn the will of the people. These actions to undermine state electoral systems have been driven by Donald Trump's big lie that the 2020 election was stolen from him by Democratic voter fraud. More recently, Trump's pardoned First National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, appearing at a QAnon conference, endorsed the idea of executing a military coup in the U.S., similar to the coup that recently took place in Myanmar, in order to reinstate Trump as president. Your reporter spoke with Sarah Kenzior author of the book Hiding in Plain Sight, and co-host of the Gaslit Nation podcast. Here she examines the Republican Party's ongoing nationwide effort to subvert free and fair elections and the Democrats' often tepid response. Uh, well, obviously the party that staged the coup is the Republican Party, uh, you know, which had an opportunity to distance itself from Trump to hold the perpetrators accountable. I think they failed to do so because this was not some sort of spontaneous, uh, you know, rising up of pro-Trump fanatics. This was something that was planned by very powerful elites, including Michael Flynn, who, of course, called for a coup again, uh, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon. These are all Trump's 
close advisors, and he pardoned them right before uh, this violent, seditious insurrection happened. And so, you know, I think that the fear the Republican Party has is examining not, you know, these uh, individuals who actually did the storming of the Capitol, but the financial and political backers behind them, as well as their own complicity within the party ranks. Uh, what's very frustrating and frightening is that the Democrats uh, have really taken very little initiative to investigate uh, the attack on the Capitol, to also go ahead and prosecute those individuals. This is part of a broader pattern of refusing to prosecute members of the Trump administration, even when they've committed blatant crimes. You know, we saw the same thing happen with Merrick Garland uh, protecting Bill Barr on multiple occasions, protecting Trump. Um, you know, you cannot let this go unpunished. And the point isn't punishment, you know, to hurt specific individuals. It's to keep dangerous actors from organizing this again. And, you know, I've been making this point for months, and I'm hoping now that Michael Flynn on Memorial Day is out saying that we should be like Myanmar, uh, that the Biden administration should be forcibly ousted with violence. And, of course, he said the same thing. Uh, back in December and January, and look what happened. You know, that is why you prosecute these individuals. It's so they can't hurt people. It's so they can't hurt our country. And the Democrats' leadership, at the least, uh, seems absolutely unwilling to do that. As you said, the Democratic Party as a whole doesn't seem to be urgently trying to address this issue of the insurrection and the attempt to overturn the 2020 election. What more can they do at this moment if the filibuster stands in the Senate blocking any action of that body and, of course, thereby blocking any initiative that comes out of the Democratic-controlled House. Yeah, I mean, the filibuster is their latest excuse for doing nothing. And, you know, what I really want to know is why do they want to do nothing? Like, why are they willing to jeopardize our democracy? Why are they willing to let a violent insurrection to let, for example, the handling of coronavirus by the Trump administration, which unnecessarily killed, you know, hundreds of thousands of Americans. You know, if it had been handled competently, this wouldn't have happened. Like, these are the most serious crimes you can really have, and they are just ignoring it. So I'm very curious as to the motivation, but, you know, in every administration, they have an excuse. It's, you know, first, though, we don't have control of the House senator presidency, which is like, all right, fine, you don't, you know, that that is what it is. And then they get control of the House. They still won't impeach. Like Nancy Pelosi had to be dragged twice to impeach Trump, including after uh, the insurrection. She didn't want to do it, uh, but she was pressured to by other people in the Democratic Party. And, you know, here it's important to remember it's not a monolith in the Democratic Party. And there are some representatives that are trying to fight for justice and, and for accountability. You know, now they have control of everything and they cannot get the most basic things done they cannot even get rid of you know lewis DeJoy, for example who hijacked our postal system like he's still there and that is not something that requires you know the senate or a filibuster or anything like that uh it just seems that they are appeasing the trump administration um you know it alarms me as somebody you know i've studied authoritarian regimes my whole life i've studied the pathways to them this reminds me of the kind of conditions of countries where elites have just decided to transition into another system of governance. 
and they're kind of getting their own affairs in order. They're protecting themselves, and they're not really looking out for the country because they know the country is going to collapse or is going to become a different system of government, a more authoritarian one. I don't know if that's the case here. You know, I, I, it remains to be seen. Um, I really hope it's not, but it's frightening. And I think, you know, with the filibuster, I, I just look at this and I think of all the times that they've gotten their, you know, caucuses in line for all sorts of ridiculous things, but they can't manage to get mansion and cinema to comply with this. There's nothing that they can do, no enticement no threats like booting people off of committees or, you know, uh, stripping them of responsibilities or what have you, like nothing really, you know, it, it's a little weird. And you have to wonder like, well, where is the urgency? Like, why are they speaking plainly about this? We all see it, but they're just pretending like it's not happening and everything is fine. And that worries me almost more than anything else. As for what people can do, um, I actually would encourage folks to look at a state level, because a lot of the most dangerous changes that are happening have to do with things like voting rights laws, um, you know, in state legislatures instead of, you know, national cases. They're trying to rig it for 2022. They're trying to rig it for 2024. Um, so that's something, you know, to work on and to protest and to mobilize locally, you know, as well as nationally. That was Sarah Kenzior, author of Hiding in Plain Sight, The Invention of Donald Trump and the Erosion of America and co-host of Gaslit Nation, a weekly podcast. Find more analysis and commentary on the Republican Party's subversion of democracy by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. The Line 3 Pipeline Project in Minnesota, if completed, will move up to 915,000 barrels of tar sands oil per day from Alberta, Canada to Superior, Wisconsin. Tar sands oil is one of the dirtiest energy sources on the planet. The 337-mile stretch of pipeline, now being built in Minnesota, would cross indigenous Anishinaabe treaty lands, threatening their sacred wild rice crop, which requires clean water to grow. Enbridge, the largest pipeline company in the world, is planning to build the Line 3 pipeline under the Mississippi River, near its headwaters where an oil spill would impact everyone downstream. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhus spent a week in northern Minnesota in early May, where she participated in a lockdown protest outside a man camp, where out-of-state workers reside while building the Line 3 pipeline. Such camps have led to an increase in violence against indigenous women and others. While there, Tuhus spoke with several indigenous water protectors. We hear from Big Wind, a member of the Northern Arapaho tribe from the Wind River Reservation in Wyoming. Here he explains his lifelong association with the oil and gas industry and recounts how after spending time at the Standing Rock Reservation fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline five years ago, he came to be active in the Line 3 struggle. I feel like there wasn't a time in my life where I haven't been fighting these extractive processes and colonialism and a lot of assimilation practices that are pushed upon us. And so at a very young age, seeing the you know, inequalities within my own community, growing up in a housing project that was right in front of a fracking and oil site, oil drilling site. Um, and the river and the creeks that we played in 
you know, I didn't recognize at the time were being utilized, being used for mixing and dilution of the chemicals that are used to process natural gas, uh, fracking, and oil. Because of that, I started to see a lot of the impacts that it was having on the people around me. Um, friends and family members pass away from rare cancers in my community, and the average life expectancy is 48. And a lot of it has to do with the environmental racism that we have faced for hundreds and hundreds of years, the colonial practices that have been utilized in that area. I come from what they would consider an oil and gas tribe. Since the creation of Wyoming as a state, it's known as the energy capital of the world, and they were stealing it from us before we were even getting a piece of the pie. And so I think that it did make sense at one point when we didn't understand the ecological and climate impacts that would happen from these extractive processes that we would want to take care of ourselves and, and want what was, you know, owed to us. Um, but now we're in this preposition of time where we recognize, you know, from the latest climate science and um, from the traditional ecological knowledge that this land is sick, all of it, everywhere. And so I've spent, you know, a great deal of my life trying to figure out how I play into the grand scheme of not only the environmental degradation that is continuously happening, but the larger impact it has on our environment and the climate. I'm a water protector who's fighting in the front lines with ordinary people just like you because we understand one thing. We cannot ensure the health and well-being for future generations if we don't take action. After I beat my cases in Standing Rock, Namewag, the camp that we're at right now, was opened up and I came here after it had opened. In the summer of 2018, we thought it was now then. And because of a lot of things, because of the regulatory processes and the permits that were needed, there was a lot of overwhelming opposition against this pipeline, you know. Through over 300,000 people telling the president that they didn't want this pipeline to go through. And, and you have, you know, over 80,000 comments that were given to the Public Utility Commission, you know, and over 95% of them were in opposition. And so you have a lot of pushback from tribal leaders, tribal organizations, and environmentalists all over the United States and world telling people that we do not need to expand the Line 3 pipeline. And that's why I'm out here. I am accountable to the indigenous matriarchs, femmes, and two spirits that opened up this place. And as a person who identifies as a two-spirit person, I embody both masculine and feminine energy, and there is a role for us in our communities. People ask me, you know, what does it mean to be a water protector? And I think for me, we never choose to love water. We are born in sacred water when we're in the womb and water remembers us and we remember it. And we understand, you know, that it is vital to all living things. If you do not drink for water for four days, you will die. And all of that's up jeopardy up here in northern Minnesota. And it's not just going to affect the people here in northern Minnesota. It is going to affect everyone downstream. We have an obligation up here to stop this pipeline, 
and to continuously stop these projects that are going to keep coming up in the next upcoming years. That was Big Wind, a member of the Northern Arapaho tribe and one of the indigenous water protectors fighting the Line 3 tar sands pipeline in northern Minnesota. Learn more about the campaign to stop the Line 3 pipeline project by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. May 26th may go down in history as one of the gloomiest days for the world's fossil fuel industry. Three events on that day may be a harbinger of change to come for oil companies that have largely resisted altering their business model to address the global climate crisis. In a landmark ruling, a court in the Netherlands ordered Royal Dutch Shell to cut its carbon emissions by 45% from 2019 levels by 2030. Then, Chevron Corporation shareholders voted in favor of a proposal to cut emissions generated by the use of the company's products. And another shareholder rebellion at ExxonMobil, the world's largest oil company, witnessed the engine number one hedge fund elect two, possibly three new board members over the company's strenuous objections, who pledged to push the company to address climate change. Your reporter spoke with Nicholas Kuznets, a reporter with a Pulitzer Prize-winning news outlet, Inside Climate News. Here he talks about his recent article that covers the success of the ExxonMobil shareholders' challenge while assessing the power of investors to change fossil fuel industry policies as the world confronts the climate crisis. Companies across uh, the corporate spectrum, um, but oil companies in particular, have been facing um, lots of these proposals from shareholders. Uh, a lot of them are kind of maybe activist shareholders who hold, you know, a small number of shares, trying to get the companies to disclose more about climate change or cut their emissions. So these have been coming for years and years, but there was a lot more attention and pressure over the last couple of years and then this year in particular. And, and this vote at Exxon, I think, was different than what we've seen. So in particular, there's this small investment firm it's called Engine Number One, and they nominated a slate of four directors uh, to replace essentially four of Exxon's twelve current directors on the on the corporate board. And the firm Engine Number One was saying that basically Exxon needs to change. It's not adapting and preparing itself for the energy transition away from fossil fuels. And this firm pointed to Exxon's relative underperformance. The oil and gas companies in general have performed much worse than uh, big stock indexes like the S&P 500 over the last five, 10 years. And Exxon in particular has, has done poorly. And so this firm pointed to that and saying, you know, look, the market is reacting and Exxon needs to change and it's not changing itself. And so we need to um, basically force it to change by, by giving it new new directors. Well, to take a step back, this past week was really a, a bad one for the fossil fuel companies in terms of their agenda of uh, keeping 
the oil being pumped out of the ground and selling it to all of us. Summarize, if you would, this important week last week and what occurred, not only with this Exxon board vote, but uh, on a couple of other fronts in terms of a, a court in the Netherlands and Chevron was another target of some shareholder initiatives. That's right. Yeah. And it actually all came on the same day on Wednesday. Uh, and so first, chronologically, was this court uh, decision that you mentioned in the Netherlands. Some activists and citizens of the Netherlands, with more than 17,000 plaintiffs, I think, had sued Shell, uh, which is a Dutch Anglo company, so based there, basically saying that, that the company is violating their rights by failing to cut emissions in line with the goals of the Paris Agreement. And um, on Wednesday, a judge agreed and, and ordered the company to cut its emissions. So Shell has pledged to reduce its own emissions, but what the plaintiffs were asking for and what the judge ruled was a much more aggressive, rapid elimination of, I think it was 45% by 2030 reduction in, in the company's emissions. And importantly, this also covers not just the emissions that come from uh, refineries and other operations that Shell is sort of directly running, but also from all the emissions of the oil and the gas that Shell sells and that people burn in their cars or planes or wherever it goes, which is it's a much bigger share. So this was a really big deal. I mean, I think it's the first such ruling anywhere that's mandating this kind of change from an oil company. And then just hours later was this vote from Exxon, uh, where the company was, you know, against its will, having its board of directors reshaped, basically, to kind of urge the company more quickly down this energy transition. The the third came with a vote at Chevron, which I think was a little more in line with what we'd seen, but again, was a really big deal. In that case, it was a shareholder vote that called on the company to, again, reduce the emissions from all of the products it sells, all the oil and gas it sells, which, like in, in any sort of, if you take a barrel of oil, basically 80, 85% of the emissions from that comes when it's burned in the car or the plane or wherever it's burned. So Chevron had said, we'll cut our own direct emissions, but had said nothing about that much, much larger share. And what that really means is that the company needs to start selling less oil and gas. So it either needs to simply ramp down its oil and gas, or if it wants to continue being an energy company, has to start producing cleaner, cleaner energy. So all those three votes together, I mean, I think the kind of takeaway is that courts and investors are now forcing these companies to change. And it was a real wake-up call, I think, because, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who spend their, their lives watching these, uh, you know, financial analysts, for example, all see these, the votes and the court case as now kind of precedents that other people are going to try to push harder on, on these same companies and, and all of their competitors. That was Nicholas Kuznets, a reporter with a Pulitzer Prize-winning news outlet, Inside Climate News. Find his article titled, ExxonMobil Shareholders to Company, We Want a Different Approach to Climate Change, and Related Analysis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. You've been listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues 
affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WZMO in Marion, Ohio, WREK in Atlanta, Georgia, KMWV in Salem, Oregon, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.